Well, good morning again. Can you all hear me okay? I'm up here? Okay. All right. We're working on the mic thing. I'm going to have one of those sexy uh, hands-free mics at some point. We've already bought it. We've had it for like months. <laughs> I just, we can't figure out how to use it. <laughs> that was our secret that's now out. Um, I think, to be precise, uh, yeah, that stat that I told Nathaniel this morning, I think it was 60, on the, I heard it on the radio coming in actually, um, 63% apparently, maybe in Houston, I'm not sure, maybe nationwide, of millennials, there was 63% say that they are not affiliated with the church and wouldn't come if invited, which that last bit kind of surprised me, but not totally. But then it's 70% say that they would come to a Bible study, was the word used, to somebody's house if invited, just much more relational, much less of a stained glass sort of stigma attached. And the fact that we have a meal weekly together and just share life is just, I think, conducive to that. So it's also a highlight of my week, I think. Um, so we invite you to come come check one of those out. So again, my name's Taylor Ince, and I'm, I'm the pastor here, privileged to be the pastor here at Surgeon Galleria. We are a church plant. We're about, depending on when you start measuring, about six months old. So little baby, little sapling. But we're Really just enjoying putting down roots here where God's called us in this Galleria area. I really have a heart for this area. So if you do too, we invite you to join us. Uh, I have a, so we're in Job 19 this morning. I've got, a, uh, I've got a friend who was a pastor of mine for a long time, family pastor, godly guy. Anyway, he got into his mid, late 60s and looked at himself, looked at his wife, said, man, we, we're graying, no problem there, but we're, we're, getting, we're putting on the pounds and uh, we really need to take a bike ride. And this guy, he has seven kids. He has, they had one girl and then the rest boys. So six boys are all rough and tumble. Like one of them won, um, not American Gladiator, but the old school, um, one of those old school like American Gladiator sort of, I can't remember what it's called, Hulk Hogan hosted it. He won the nationwide contest. Like, no, it's, it's before that. It was, it was Gladiator, just, just straight Gladiator. So that's the type of like child he had, like just Gladiator-esque. Anyway, and that all came from him. And so he was like, this is no good. We are shedding these pounds. We're taking a bike trip. And so as compared to most who would just like take a, I don't know, train for a 100-mile bike trip or let's bike to Austin. Or, no, let's do it nationwide. So he, uh, he and his wife would train like Saturdays and I think some other days of the week. And they bought a tandem bike that actually cost more. It had separate drivetrains on it, so it actually cost more. He'd been a pastor all his life, more than any car he'd ever purchased in his life. It cost $5,000. And so, <laughs> that tells you the kind of car. He would actually leave his keys in his car wherever he went. Just like, please take it. It would be a favor to me. Please take it. Um, so they dipped their, when they got ready, it was, multi, I think, a six-week trip. And they dipped their back tire in the Pacific near Seattle. And then by the time they finished, they dipped their front tire near Boston in the Atlantic. Poor wife. Uh, no, they had a fun time, but she had to sit behind him. <laughs> what a view. So, point of the story is that I remember him telling me, at one point we were, cutting, we were climbing through the Rockies, cutting through the Rockies, and that was definitely the hardest part of the trip, while scenic, ex- excruciating. And he said, I was so tired, not just physically, but just psychologically and emotionally, and just so tired of doing the same thing day in, day out. Because they had people meeting them every week. They had a different couple from the church meet them in a, in a van and, like, drive behind them. So they couldn't just poop out or say, ah, we're going to lag a little bit this week. They had to stay on schedule 80 miles a day. And so I think one day off per week. And so he said, I was so tired in every way, just tired of this, and, like, tired of life, <laughs> that I looked in my mirror on the side of our bike and I saw we were climbing up this pass, one of many, just to know that we were going to have to do it again and again and again. And I saw this semi coming up behind us and I literally prayed the prayer, oh dear Lord, please have that semi swerve and take us out. He's a godly man. And he's like, his next, his next thing to me is like, I would not have swerved myself. First of all, my wife's on the bike with me, but I will not commit suicide when, when God takes me, it's up to him, but I was just praying it was now. <laughs> Didn't happen. He, he still lives to tell the tale. Um, but that's really where Job is right now. We've gotten to the point where we've looked at this book where Job is a godly, godly man. And for that reason, God sort of almost suggests in chapter 1 to Satan... 
um, hey, this, this guy, Job, he is, he is righteous. He's not sinless. He understands he's a sinner. That's part of why he's righteous. He looks to me for his salvation. He understands who I am. He loves me. He walks in purity and uprightness and honesty. Um, you might want to consider trying to take him down because, man, I'm telling you, he, uh, I don't think he loves me just because of what I give him. And Satan says, bull, I call, I call bluff. I'm going to take everything away from him, and he's going to curse you to his face. So really the whole book is about Job getting everything, including all ten children, taken from him at once, basically. And then just a microscope on him, looking at will he curse God? Why does he love God? Will Job's faith hold is really, I think, the question of the book. And it does hold. And we're told that what he says about God is true, but he says some really hard things. Here in this chapter, he really gets to this low point. It's this hard, beautiful chapter where he's been just crying out to God the whole time. And here in chapter 19, for most of the chapter, really through verse 20, verses 1 through 20, he just says, I've lost everything. Everything, God, you've taken absolutely everything from me. I have nothing left. But then in that valley where he can't go any lower, I mean, literally he wants his life taken from him. Like, like my friend Buck, he, he basically is like, I mean, not basically, in chapter 3, his first prayer, he's like, Lord, just, it would have been better if I hadn't been born. Please, why didn't you take my life? It would have been a mercy. But still he lives. The one thing he wants to lose, he can't lose his life. And then everything else that he wished he hadn't lost, his wealth, more importantly, his family, is gone. And we're going to look at how one by one he lists at the beginning of this chapter everything he's lost. But in that valley, he sees almost unbelievably, beyond cognition, beyond what he feels, beyond what he sees, he knows something so beautiful and true. And he talks about his Redeemer living. And so uh, we want to end on, we want to go, we want to start with Job's total loss, just sit there with Job for a bit. Job's total loss, but then we want to look at his valley of vision. In verses 21 and 22, he has this plea for compassion from his friends. And then he makes this amazing statement about his Redeemer living and taking his stand on the earth. So we want to go Job's total loss, then we want to go Job's valley, uh, his valley of vision in verses 21 and 22. And we want to finish with an unshakable hope and heart's desire. Okay, so Job's total loss, his valley of vision in the pit at the bottom, and then his unshakable hope and heart's desire coming out of that. So let's look at Job's total loss first. Like I said, everything but his life is taken from him, and that doesn't seem like a mercy at all. He wishes God would kill him, but God just chooses not to. Okay? Um, so first of all, he's lost his justice. If you're taking notes, and it might be up there on the screen, it might not, but he's lost his justice. In verses 6 and 7, he says, God has deprived me of justice. The word is a legal term that he uses there, that word justice. And he's really saying, God has forensically, in a courtroom sort of way, he's deprived me of justice. He's done wrong to me. He's wronged me. God himself has wronged me. Job is taking God to court, and he's coming within a hair's breadth of calling God unjust. He's walking the tightrope between utter honesty, utter honesty in his pain, still talking to God, still talking about God. He's walking the tightrope between utter honesty and blasphemy. He's saying, look, I don't deserve what God has done to me, which is true. He's not saying God has done wrong, God is wrong, God is unjust, but he's coming real close, depending on how you read the text. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Um, God is depriving him of justice. That is correct, but with good reason. It's a reason that Job doesn't see, that Job doesn't understand, um, but it is a reason. And so Job is really just at the bottom here. So he's lost, he's lost justice as he perceives it, and in a sense he really has. He's been treated unjustly. Secondly, he's lost his family and friends. He's been abandoned. If you look at verses 12 and 13, to lose your family and friends, to be abandoned by your closest by your family and your closest intimates. He calls them intimates in this text. It's a huge deal in any time, place, and culture. It's a huge deal. Um, it's a bigger deal in Job's context in the ancient Near East. Um, your family was your social net. You lived with your family often in the same building. You, you lived in the village almost always um, with your family. Your, not just your nuclear family, but your extended family. Um, you spent your life with them. And... Um, 
friend, a good friend, was perhaps an even bigger deal then in that culture than it, than it is to us. The Proverbs say, a good friend sticks closer than a brother. A good friend sticks closer. So some friends are even better than family in Job's culture. And even his friends, have, they've just left him. And a good man, Job was the best man on the face of the earth, we're told in chapter 1. Not a prig, not pharisaical, but truly good, humble. He did justice. He loved God. A good man attracts good friends. You gather some people of similar ilk around you, typically. So that's why you can tell what someone's like by looking at their friends, typically. Well, this man, we tend to kind of, when we read the book of Job, because of the prologue, we tend to, and because of what Job's, God says at the end about, hey, your friends haven't spoken to me what is right, I'm furious with them. And they do tend to just rake Job over the coals. We tend to give them a hard time, but these were good men. Job is a good man, and he attracted good friends to himself. Um, they say great stuff, like we talked about last week, great Sunday school answer type things. Honor God, repent. God is just and good and all-powerful. All true things. Um, and when in, we, I, think we, I think we tend to forget about, because most of the book is about them railing against him, and then at the end God says, hey, they spoke falsely of me. But we forget, we forget the way they came. The fact is, in this culture, if somebody like Job had everything taken from them at once, godly people would typically say, that's the hand of God. Bad things happen to you, you must have done something bad. So most people immediately would have just stayed away from Job. But these four men, they come close. And what do they do? They don't say a word. They see his state, his miserable state, maybe even been so afflicted physically that he looks, he, they can't even recognize him. He's beyond recognition. Sitting on an ash heap with, with nothing left. No children, no possessions. Even his wife has turned against him and turned against God, really. And they sit and they just say nothing for seven days and seven nights. They just are silent. Can you imagine being quiet that long, period, with somebody? Good friends. But even they have turned on him. They despise him. And they insist that he's done something to deserve. By this point, they started light, sort of like we, got, we talked about last week. They started sort of lightweight, saying, hey, just repent, man. It's, good's going to come. By this point, they're like, bro, you deserve everything you've gotten. Where's your secret sin? Just stop denying it. Your kids deserve to die. So his friends have turned on him. His family has turned on him. He's, he has no one left. He's lost his, not only his family and friends, but he's lost his honor. In verse 16 and verse 18, he's been shamed. We have a guilt-innocence culture. So if somebody, if Johnny throws a rock through a window, um, did you do it? Are you guilty or not would be the question. Did you do it or not? And if you did, you're guilty and you need to make reparations. And if you didn't, then you're innocent. But in Job's culture and still today in the ancient Near East, in lots of places, if not all places, it's really more of an honor-shame culture. And less of a guilt, also a guilt innocence, but more the, the emphasis tends to be on honor and shame. And so the question would be, when Johnny throws a rock through a window, it would kind of be more, did it, does anyone know that you did it? And if so, you're going to bring shame to yourself and to our family if we don't make reparations. You see? Um, so the fact that Job has been shamed because he is looked upon now as the worst of sinners by almost everybody around him. He's brought shame not only to himself, but to every single person that's close to him, to his family, to his friends. He's culturally and morally, he's culturally just bankrupt now. He has no social capital, and neither does anyone that associates themselves with him. When we see someone suffer like this, we tend to try to distance ourselves from them. Lest it stick to us, unless from them or from whatever's coming at them. So he's... He's lost his honor. He's been shamed. He's lost his connections, his family and his friends. He's lost justice. He's lost his, even his moral purity. Um, at, he, knows, he knows in his heart of hearts that he hasn't done anything to deserve this, that he's walked in a way that seems to be pleasing to God, that he's been a man of justice and compassion for the poor and the underprivileged. But, but he, in verse 19, um, he says, All my intimate friends abhor me. And those whom I loved have turned against me. Basically, he's, he has become, in the eyes of all, that word abhor is the root of the word abomination, which is a fairly common word in the Old Testament. It's a legal word, again. It's in the legal code. And it's used of the Sodomites when God, before God destroys their city. 
Um, and later in the law, as the Sodomites are brought up again and again for their sin, um, not just the sin of homosexuality, but of pride, of injustice, of oppressing the poor, just the sort of the, the epitome of wickedness, God says, they were an abomination to me. And what the sins they committed were an abomination. That same word, that same root is used. Um, it's described... It's used to describe things that God hates worse than anything. They're un- intolerable to him because they're so morally corrupt. And this is the way that Job says his intimates, his intimates, best, the best friends that he had, now look at him and now feel about him. He's just morally been stripped. He's morally lost everything in their eyes. And again, like I sort of, like we started off with, there's even a sense in which he feels that he's lost God. There's a sense There's a sense, because he doesn't finish there, does he? We're going to get there. There's a sense in which he feels that even he has lost even God, even though he knows he hasn't turned against God. He still loves God, but he doesn't understand. Why this injustice? Do you hate me? Do you hear me? Um, Verses 10 and 11, God kindles a fire on top of me. He's making a campfire, and he's putting it on my head, and he's lighting a match. That's how it feels. I'm just burning down. And God's burning me down. He what? Pulls me up root and branch. Look, he's, he's talking about a tree here. Um, it's a powerful image. He's not, saying, he's not saying I'm a shrub and God just grabbed me by the hair and pulled me out with one hand. He's saying I'm a tree with roots that go down deep. And he has pulled me up from the deepest part of who I am. It's a colossal, violent action. The more established, this, I mean, Job is the Psalm 1 man. He is the, the man who meditates on God's word day and night. He loves God. He walks with God. His roots go deep by the streams of living water. He has a lot of fruit that he's born in his life. Drought comes, and he's okay because his roots go so deep into the love of God. But he has been pulled up root and branch. A huge, huge effort has been um, undertaken to uproot this man. And it's almost worked. Um, The more righteous a man, the harder it is to move him. And Job has just been, a huge hole has been dug under him. And Satan has gone to, some some men, Satan just throws a little candy, a little sin candy in front of them and they bite and it's done. Right? Some men, some women. I've been that guy too, too many times. Not Job. Job, Satan throws everything he has. Everything he has at him. God says, just anything you want. Uh, this guy is the man, he loves me, he's looking at me, go for it, do your worst, but just don't kill him. So Satan just goes all out, pulls him up root and branch. And of course, all this, we've talked about this before, but all this attack from Satan, Job perceives as being from God, and indeed it is through God, and through God's providential hand, although God doesn't author it, God loves Job, and evil never comes from him, but he uses it, he uses it, thank God he uses it for good and for his glory. So, Satan has given it his all to uproot this man. Still Job remains. Still Job clings to God. Still Job trusts in God, but he's crying out, man. Everything's been taken from me. I've lost it all. Okay, that's point one. I've lost it all. Everything has been taken from Job. And in that place, he gets this place in verse 21 and 22 where he has this beautiful, I'm going to call it the Valley of Vision, it's the entranceway to the Valley of Vision. But he has this beautiful cry where he's basically been crying out against his friends. His friends have been saying, it's your fault, it's your fault. And he's been saying, no, it's not. Guys, you are worthless counselors. I thought you were my friends. You're making it even harder. It's hard enough as it is. You're making it even harder. You know, again, I think I said this a few weeks ago, but the old aphorism, it, with friends like these, who needs enemies? I don't need enemies. You are great enemies. You're killing me, Smalls. Sandlot, great movie. That was not in the script. You're killing me, Smalls. Valley of Vision. He cries out, rather than crying out against his friends, verses 21 and 22. Beautiful. I mean, almost brings me to tears and has a couple times, but have mercy on me, verse 21. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. He's crying out to his friends. He's just pleading for mercy and for compassion. Um, it's a touching, unexpected move. It's not a cry of vindictiveness, which he, in a sense, would have been within rights. He's not lashing out. 
that he's being unjustly treated or preached at or blamed for days on end. Again, he's pleading for pity to these men who have just thrown the gasoline of vitriol on the fire of his misery. This is Job's valley of vision. This phrase, valley of vision, that I've used for point two here, Job's valley of vision, it comes from Isaiah 22.1. Isaiah 22.1. Isaiah is a prophet, um, one, of the, one of the big prophets, long prophets, in, uh, lived about 700 years before Christ in the Bible. Um, and that phrase in Isaiah 22.1, the valley of vision, it gave birth to a Puritan prayer book that if you don't have, I'd highly recommend you get as a guide in your prayers. It's a wonderful collection of Puritan prayers called Valley of Vision. Um, and it's based on the idea that the stars often shine the brightest when we're in the darkest place. They do, right? The stars shine the brightest when we are in the darkest place. We can't see them in the city. Robin and I were in uh, Hawaii. She has family there. It's a, it's a rough place to have family, I know. So we went there on family holiday, stayed with the grandparents. God bless them. 93-year-old grandfather trying to I mean, pushing our little two-year-old around on his walker. It was awesome. But the stars, man, the stars at night, just absolutely, absolutely astounding because it's just so much darker there than it is here in Houston. Um, But we see most clearly sometimes in the darkest places, in the valley, in the valley, the stars, the high stars of truth that are beyond even explanation, beyond cognition, beyond what we feel, beyond even what we see around us, the stars of high beauty and truth that we know that we know that we know. We can't explain, but we know that we know that they are real. And because they are real, because that truth and that beauty exist, I don't know how, but things are going to be okay. That's, that's the place that this suffering brings Job to. And I just want to say to you, friend, that if you're in that place, there's hope for you. Because there was hope for Job. And there was hope for Job, and there's hope for you because of Jesus Christ, which is, of course, where I'm headed. You know this. Um, And, you know, Job's friends don't hear this cry. They kind of stuff the pie in his face or, or just say, talk to the hand or whatever it is, you know. He's crying out for mercy. They don't hear, but God hears. And he, Job doesn't feel like God hears. He doesn't. All the way through the end of the book, until God starts speaking. Job feels like the skies are brass. His prayers are bouncing. God doesn't hear, but God does hear. We know this in part because in verses 23 and 24, he's, he's just crying out saying, I wish that my words were written with an iron pen in stone so that they would be remembered forever. I wish that somebody were recording this, that I had a witness. And the fact is, God granted that request. God granted that request. We have Job's words. What a treasure for us. They were being written, which shows us that God heard this and that indeed God was with Job during this time, in the heavens, but also with him somehow, beside him, in his suffering, loving him. Um, When it feels like God isn't hearing anything you say, he is hearing and he's recording your every word. And the scriptures also tell us that God has a bottle in which he keeps every tear that you cry. It's not just a nice image. It means that he's with you, and it means that your pain matters, and your words of pain matter, and he's saving those because they matter to him. They're treasures to him. Not your pain, but they're not going to go wasted. One day, all of your sadness not just going to go away, he's going to use it somehow to plant the seeds of a new creation. Somehow, it's going to make you more beautiful, more glorious, more loving, more like him. And it's going to help populate the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so that's Job's valley of vision, that breakthrough at the bottom of the pit for him. Thirdly, let's look at his unshakable hope and heart's desire. This is really the focus of the text, and I think in a sense the focus of the book Um, This low point, which is yet this amazingly mysterious high cry and high point. Job's unshakable hope and heart's desire, point three. In verses 25 and 27, as we've marked through the the text, here we are in verse 25. Job's clearly, he's clearly expressing this unshakable bedrock hope in a bodily resurrection. He doesn't say, hey, one day I'm going to live again and I'm going to be in the clouds. He says, 
I'm with my own eyes going to see God. And this figure that he talks about, this kinsman, redeemer, he's, uh, he's going to come and he's going to take his stand with his own two legs on this very earth. And because of that, I will see God and my heart's desire will be fulfilled. I know this. Somehow I know this. And because I know this, it's going to be okay. I can't work out how it is. In verse 25, in the Hebrew, it's not translated in the text, but he says, literally in the Hebrew, he says, I, I, like he's pointing to his chest, I know. So verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. That word Redeemer. For I, I know. It's superfluous in the Hebrew, and what it points to is just emphasis. It's like an underliner, like a highlighter. Um, He's saying, again, it's emphatic. I know this even if I can't explain to you how I know this, but my Redeemer, he lives. And I'm going to be made right. Because my Redeemer lives, I'm going to be made right body and soul. Things are going to be made right. Injustice is going to be made right. Um, So he points to this bodily recreation. This new heavens and this restored place that's been corrupted by our sin um, on the other side of death. You know, life makes no ultimate sense if, if we and everything that we love, everything that's meaningful, everything that's special, all beauty, all life itself, it just ends in a heat death. If a heat death for the universe is truly the end, then no matter how deeply you may feel that there is meaning in this life, you're wrong. You're wrong. And if you don't understand why, then I'd love to sit down with you and have coffee or lunch at Jerusalem Halal Market after this and talk. Because if the very end of things is death, is cold, heat death, it doesn't matter what we experience here ultimately. It's all for naught. It doesn't matter how long it lasts, if, there's, if the end is final. Um, that's really, I think, the point. I spent some time with this book, with the book of Ecclesiastes. I think it's sort of to get us to the place where we understand that if that's the end of things, if death is really the end of things, both our death personally and and the death of the cosmos, if that's it, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Then our our life and the beast life, same deal. There's there's no no point. Everything is breath. Pointless. Um, The poet Tennyson picked up on this. um, One of my favorites, by no means a Christian. Thou madest man, he knows not why. He thinks he was not made to die. There's something in us that knows this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 speaks to that. God has put eternity in our hearts. And it, that understanding, even if we can't articulate it, 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 it's like this deep pain and angst and ache inside of us. We're so glad it's true, but everything we, around us says it's not. Um, one of my... I feel like this movie comes up. I mean, if you stick around long enough, you're going to hear it again. Every, every like, 10 or 12 sermons. Don't worry, it's not Lord of the Rings. That's, like, every two or three sermons. Blade Runner. That's right. Go watch it if you haven't. Do yourself a favor. My brother hated it. I'm still working to forgive him. Um, Blade Runner. Great movie. 80s movie with Harrison Ford. Um... So the short of it is that there are these robots that are, the phrase is more human than human. You can't tell they're robots. They look just like humans, and in fact, they're smarter and stronger, but they look just like human skin, everything. They don't, there's none of that. And so it's a great film because of the truths that it touches on and provokes and the questions that it asks, not because the sci-fi is fantastic, although, anyway, the lighting's great. Nor would know how many cinematography awards it won. Um, but one of the questions that it asks, these, these robots who are more human than human, they are given a four-year lifespan. So when they're, when they're built, it, it's programmed into them that they will expire in four years. But they have memories that are implanted into them, so they feel like they've been alive for decades. So one of the questions is, what does it mean to be human and one of the other questions is, you know, what does it mean to be human and what is, what is meaning at all if, if we die in four years? You see, so I think one of the points that's brilliantly put in this simple way is that 
in four, if we live four years and that's the end, and we have all these hopes and dreams and, and, and wonderful things that are, and horrible things, but we know meaning is real, but if we expire in four years and that's it, it's absurd. It's like, of course, that's ridiculous. For some reason, we think that if we multiply that times 20 and we live 80 years, it's okay. That's just bad thinking. It's, it's still just as absurd to live 80 years feeling what we feel, knowing what we know. I, I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know I'm made for more. I know that I'm going to see God with my own two eyes, with a new body, restored, where everything is made right. If that's not the end, if that's not where we're headed, then eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's, there is no meaning. Everything is truly, as, as Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, said, everything's absurd. And Camus with him and others. Everything's absurd. Um, life without eternity, life that ultimately ends means nothing, as I've said. If death is the end, um, not only of us, but of all the good that we taste and touch and remember on this good green earth, then as I said, Sartre and his, and his friends were right. All is absurd. So Tozer, um, a mid-20th century pastor, A.W. Tozer, um, out of Chicago and an author, he said this. He said, quote, The ancient image of God whispers within every man of everlasting hope. Somewhere he will continue to exist. So we know this, right? Still he cannot rejoice. For the, lights that light, the light that lights every man that comes into the world troubles his conscience, frightening him with proofs of guilt and evidences of coming death. So is he ground. Get this sentence. So is he ground between the upper millstone of hope and the nether stone of fear. We have this hope. We have this great hope that we know has to be true, and yet we see all these things around us. We fear this is not true. Such a poignant line. But our senses and much of our culture now and the sciences suggest to us otherwise that we are going to finish in a heat death, that there is no real life after death, that the deposits that we're making here and now won't last forever. How can I look at my little two-year-old daughter, Susanna, and all the life that's in her and just think, well, one day she's going to die, whether, whether soon or late, and that's going to be the end of her. How can that kind of beauty, how can that kind of beauty be snuffed out, snuffed out forever? How can that not have been made to last. It's a travesty. We know it's a travesty in the deepest part of who we are. Even if our culture, lots of our sciences, lots of our educational systems are telling us differently. And so does Job. So, because we're being told differently, we often resort to living unexceptionally in light only of the next few decades. And everything around us is doing the same thing, marching to that beat, taking that line. So we feed ourselves the quiet lie that it's it's okay. It's not okay. Um, additionally, we know that to see God as we are, it, it, it would not, that's our hope, but yet it's, it's, we're ground between that hope and the nether stone of fear, as Tozer says, because our hope is to see God. We know we were made for him. We know we were made for eternity and for the remaking of all things and for beauty to really last and for us to almost enter into it, as it were, as I'll get to in a bit. But yet, if we're honest, we also know that if there is a God, he has to be without sin. He has to be just, pure, and holy. And that means trouble for me, friend. And it means trouble for you. And that's a problem. The scriptures say that we were meant to live forever, that we were made for that, but that our sin has broken that system, which is why death exists. And so our only hope to stand before God is something that we can't do on our own. And so Job has this cry for this redeemer. I'm not going to live because of my goodness. I mean, Job's been talking about his innocence all along, but he doesn't end there, does he? At the deepest place, he's, he cries out, not for his own, he doesn't stand on his own uprightness. He says, I know that I will live, that I will stand. No matter how I die, no matter what happens to me now, no matter what people think, no matter how much I've lost because of my redeemer. And that word there, as I said, it's, it's a, again, it's an Old Testament, it's a common Old Testament idea, it's a common Old Testament word. It's, it's um, the phrase kinsman redeemer. And scholars don't really know what to do with the fact that Job um, utilizes that Old Testament phrase here at this point in the text. It's, it's bizarre. Because 
The Old Testament kinsman redeemer was a provision within the law, in this normal world, this broken world in which we live, that God made for someone that is kin, that is family, within the Israelite uh, clan system to provide for you when you, when the stuff hits the fan, when you are on the bottom, when you hit rock bottom, when you, uh, like, so the book of Ruth is really about Boaz being Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Um, and so she very much needs a husband to provide for her financially and hopefully to give her children because her husband has died. And so Boaz, as her kinsman redeemer, actually ends up marrying her. And it's through them that King David comes. And it's through King David that our Messiah comes. And it's through our Messiah that the heavens and the earth shall be remade and that we have any hope at all. And so this idea of kinsman redeemer is so fundamental to our salvation, but also to Old Testament law, um, financial provision, family provision. When you hit the rocks, the kinsman redeemer was there to help you out of that situation. If your land had been taken, to somehow take it back for you. Um, so he was a, like a one-man social security system um, provided by God in his law for people that were just in dire straits. The problem, the reason scholars don't know what to do with this is because Job has just said here and in the entire book, and we know he doesn't have any family left. All of his family has either been killed or disowned him. Even his um, brothers and sisters, you know, my mother's, my mother's kids, have disowned me, have abandoned me, have left me. His intimate friends who might have perhaps played kinsman redeemer to him have turned their backs on him. They look at him as, a, as moral filth. So who's he talking about? Well, he says, I know my Redeemer lives currently. It's present tense. So this is a man, and he is living because he's going to stand on the earth. But he's also, um, if you look at verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives, present, and at the last he will take his stand upon the earth. That's another Old Testament phrase, common phrase, that really talks about the final day, the new age that's coming, when God's going to begin to restore all things. The future Here's the theological word, eschaton, the future age that's coming that all Jews believed in because it's, it's a theme throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Not this broken age, but when Messiah comes, he's going to start a new age. He's going to bring in the kingdom of God in such a way that God is going to begin to reverse the curse. He's going to, here's the Tolkien phrase that you hear all the time, he's going to begin to make everything sad come untrue. He's going to begin that. And then one day, he's going to come back and he's going to finish it. So this, this kinsman redeemer that Job's crying out for, that he knows exists, he lives now, and yet he is going to take his stand on the last day. So in a sense, he's eternal, he's immortal, but he's, very much, he's got a body, he's a man. Um, and the Hebrew literally reads, at the last he will take his stand, excuse me, at the last he will take his stand on the earth is the way the ESV reads, it also can read, but at the last he will rise. So not just take a stand, but the word can mean he will rise upon the dust. It's not, the earth is not the word. Ha'aretz, that's the earth. It's not the word. Okay? The word is he will, take his, he will rise upon the dust. Okay? So when we think of rise, and everything I've said so far, hopefully you're thinking, somehow, knowledge beyond knowledge, he, he knows that God is going to come and make things right through a man, and he's forecasting our Messiah who would come centuries later. He's talking about Jesus. He knows that God himself is going to come. And Jesus indeed did come as God, as a man, to take our place and to be our advocate, to be our kinsman redeemer, to pull us out of the dark pit. So Job is prophetically forecasting, I know this is going to happen. Um, so he will rise upon the dust. The reason I want to point that out, dust, and not just earth, is because dust is a word, the first time it appears is in Genesis 3, and it appears almost with a highlighter in the Hebrew. It's, a direct, it's directly associated with the curse. Man, Adam and Eve, our forefathers in whom we are represented, sinned. They disobeyed God and went their own way. They said, God, we know that you've asked us to do these things. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to reign, not you. And that severed relationship. And because they were put in charge of all things, because man was given dominion over all of God's creation, everything under man's domain cracked and fell as man cracked and fell which is why we see all the unrest and all the turmoil today that's why centipedes exist 
Centipedes, Robin hates them, they're in, they're in Hawaii, and they're like the only evil thing about Hawaii, other than the humans that are there. Everything else is like paradise. But uh, centipedes certainly came into existence at the curse. Um, but in Genesis 3.19, God says, look, sort of a crystallization of the curse is that I brought you man out of the dust to have dominion over the dust. But because you have sinned, you're going to die. And the dust is going to eat you. You who are made from dust will go back to the dust. It will consume you. Rather than you having dominion over the earth, the earth is going to swallow you up. And it will every single one of us unless Christ returns. That's our end. And so what he is saying is that I know that this figure is going to come and he's going to make good where Adam failed. As a man. He's going to obey God the Father from the heart. He's going to have total relationship with the Father. He's going to have dominion as it was supposed to be over all things. Um, And he's going to, through something that he does, through who he is, he's going to reverse that curse. And things are going to be because of his life as they ought to be. And so, um, I mean, as I've said, Job is forecasting Christ. Only Christ fits this. Again, it's why especially liberal scholars just scratch their heads like, he's clearly talking about a messianic figure that Jesus fulfills, but how could he know this? That's part of the glory and the beauty of the word of God, friends. Nothing but Christ makes sense of this passage, certainly. But Christ, as he told his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, at the very last bit of, of the book of Luke, Christ alone makes sense of God's word because Christ alone is God's word. What does God want to say to us? What does he want to tell us? What does he want us most to know? Jesus, his son. Come, not just to stand upon the dust and to have dominion over it like Adam was supposed to, but to be swallowed up by it. To become our sin on that Roman cross. Not something he deserved, something we deserve. To become our sin and to be swallowed up to die, truly to die, to take the curse that we have earned inside of himself, to pay that price so that we don't have to pay it, and to be swallowed up by the earth. But he didn't stay there. And so everything I said is true. Death is not the end. Heat death is not the end. When he rose, that meant that his payment for our sins was accepted. So when we trust in him, our sins are taken care of, and we will one day bodily rise from the dead as he did. That's a guarantee for all of those who trust in him. And because man was given dominion over all things, all things cracked. But Christ is the first fruit of a new creation. When man is restored, when man is redeemed, when man is made as he was created to be, and the sin problem is taken care of, all of creation will respond in kind. Um, the prophets say that it, it will be as if the trees, they won't just wave in the wind, they'll be like, they'll clap their hands. They'll sing. The, the, the rocks will cry out. In other words, as beautiful as creation is now, as wonderful as things are, it's just a shadow. Like C.S. Lewis said, these are the shadow lands. The highest beauty that we see is just a taste of the feast that's coming. Um, to live in light of this day that's coming, to live in light of what Christ has done and the fact that he's reigning now, and we get to make deposits into that new creation by faith as we trust in him. And that the end is not a heat death, but the end is a resurrected life with a, with a new creation that be, will be restored. It changes absolutely everything. One teacher, Bill Johnson, he calls it the Christian's North Star. It guides us. It keeps us living right. It keeps us headed in the right direction. Um, another scholar, new, new Testament scholar, Tom Wright, refers to the, res- the truth of the resurrection and the restoration of all things consequently. As um, he says, the cross is like the back tire of the bicycle for the Christian. We put our weight on it. It's where all things are made right for us. It's where sin was taken care of. It's where we were totally cleaned and made righteous before God as we trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us and not our own works. But the resurrection is like the front tire. It's the one that, it's the one that points us in the right direction. And, and wherever I turn that thing, that's where I'm headed. The resurrection is where we're going. If we live in light... Of this life only, we will make all the wrong choices. That's one thing Job is telling us. That's one thing he's clinging to. 
And it's what Jesus' resurrection promises us. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said, hey, if you're not thinking of the next life and the new heavens and the new earth, and that is your final destination forever with God and his people, if you're not thinking of eternity at least 30 minutes a day, you're just not going to live right. I ain't living right then. To, to have that be part of the warp and woof of what we think about, what we meditate on, not just as we're in the scriptures, yes, then in the morning or wherever we have our time with the Lord, but throughout the day, just as we, as, as we soak in that at one point during the day, just, letting, just soaking in that for the rest of the day, that every decision I make, every thought that comes into my head, I'm processing it through the filter of Christ's resurrection, of the fact that the heat death is not the end. No. If it is the end, I'm going to live completely differently if it's not the end. If Christ and his resurrection and what he is going to bring about are real, then my life is going to look completely different. I'm going to make completely different investments. Not for me, not for my own self-gratification, because I only have you know, 40 years left on this earth, which might as well be four, because in the end, who cares? It's just, you know, anarchy, despair. Those are kind of our options. Rage, rage against the machine. But hope, deep hope, and meaningful work, and justice. Even our mind, if I have this hope, that... It's going to be perfected one day, so I don't have to worry about getting it all right. I can just make little deposits. I can just make little. I can plant little seeds because I know because of the new heavens and new earth, those little seeds are going to grow. Everything I do by faith in Christ is going to grow into a massive oak tree that's going to last forever. There's this. Um, I use this illustration, and then just a couple application points, and B, we'll finish up and go to communion. But um, I heard this is okay. Massive hearsay. I mean, I heard it on the a podcast. So maybe not even as reliable as the radio, but um, I heard it, right? It wasn't like from some friend. Oh, Facebook. So um, when Facebook was just starting out and they had bought their first building and they hired a painter to paint the inside of the building and they didn't even have enough money to pay him, apparently. Again, it sounds apocryphal, but let's just go with it. Yeah, they didn't have enough money to pay him, and so they said, we'll just give you a bit of our company if we ever make it big, you know? So they gave him like 0.01% of the company just to paint for a few days. And Homeboy didn't cash in until his stock until the company went public, and maybe a bit after that, just held on to it until Facebook was worth trillions, and made, they said hundreds of millions, I don't know, but... A lot more than he would have, you know, a couple thousand pay, been paid for getting, for painting. And I really feel like that is just a great picture of our, what our living in light of Christ and his resurrection and all that that means for everything around us. We're, you know, whatever we do, we're really just, we're, we're just starting a work. It, we, our lives are short and everything we do is imperfect because I'm doing it and I'm imperfect and I'm a sinner. And I live in a broken world, but I'm painting a wall. But man, in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that wall, painting that wall is a stock option in the most rich, prosperous, and powerful company called God's kingdom on the earth. It's going to last forever. Your paint job is going to, in the new heavens and new earth, if you've done it for Christ, it's going to yield dividends far beyond what that guy that lucky guy got for painting those walls. Um, that is a fact that goes beyond what the world tells us because the scriptures tell us this and our deepest cry knows this and Job knows this. And the fact is, Job was able to say these things and we're able to have these things that he said and he was able to be restored at all because like, like him, I mean literally I'm going down the list, Jesus lost justice. Jesus lost every bit of justice. He deserved complete and perfect justice and to be vindicated of everything. He was nailed to a cross. He endured the wrath of God. He became sin. He was so unjustly treated. He lost all of his family and friends. Everybody deserted him, even his father. Job felt abandoned by God. Jesus was abandoned by God so that we could be brought in, so that we would never be forsaken, so that Job, even Job, wouldn't be forsaken. 
He lost his honor. He was shamed beyond recognition. He lost his moral purity in becoming sin for us, taking our sin upon himself. He became an abomination in the worst possible way, a way that we'll never understand. I think even in the new heavens and new earth, And I say it with trembling, but in some mysterious way, I think that the son even lost, truly lost his father. And again, systematic theologians might take issue, but there's a sense in which everything that we deserved, severance from, the, from God completely because of our sin, Jesus took upon himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not just a feeling, a fact. So that Job, even in his lowest moment, and we could be brought in. Um, so we have a redeemer and he lives and he is, he has come to make all things new and he has begun the process of restoration. And guess what? Guess who his body is? Guess who gets to continue his work while he's in heaven working through us? We do by his spirit, because of what he's done, because of where he is reigning, even if it doesn't look like it reigning, regardless of who's running for election, regardless of what's happening in the earth, he's our King. Our citizenship is in heaven. And what we do by faith in his name matters. Um, I am going to die and so are you, but that's not the end. After that, I and you who trust in Christ, we will see God with our own two eyes, we and not another. This salvation is for us. It's for you. God came for you, not another. He came for you with your name on his heart. The beauty of the doctrine of particular redemption, sometimes called limited atonement. I don't like that. Particular atonement. Jesus didn't die for a faceless mass. He died for you. He died for you. He died for your sins. He paid for your sins. He loves you. He knows you. That's the point of life, is to know him, to see him, to be made like him. Um, I'm going to close with that and praise it without jumping into more application, pray that uh, it gives you, friend, good hope, even in your despair. Father, I, um, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Job 19. I thank you that the stars can be brightest when we are deepest down because of Jesus. It's not just some rootless hope that we have. It's a hope that is real. Um, that Christ has gone down to the deepest depths for us. He's buried our sin. Um, even in our worst situation, we can know that we're taken care of if we look to Christ and are found in him with his righteousness, perfectly pleasing to you. Um, and it gives meaning to everything that we do. And I pray that you would just help us to live into that, to live in underneath, in light of the resurrection, in light of eternity, that that would indeed be more and more our North Star, our guiding star that it would really make a difference in our investments in where we invest our time and our talents and our treasure in how we spend ourselves, not just for the next 40 years, 20 years, 60 years, depending on our age, but in light of eternity. Painting those walls. Painting those walls. Lord, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.